Recorded live from Hong Kong and Toronto. This is the PR and Law Podcast. The PR and Law Podcast. Turn it up, turn it up. With your hosts, Cam McMurchy and you and Christy. All right, welcome to episode number five. Five already. This is the PR and Law Podcast. I am Cam McMurchy alongside you and Christy. Hello, Cameron. How are you? Not bad, you and good to uh, I'm kind of amazed we've made it to episode five. Actually, I'm a PR guy based in Hong Kong and publisher of the Digital Bits PR and communications newsletter. And Ewan is a very talented and smart employment lawyer and partner at Duntroon LLP in Toronto, Canada. And you can find his firm online at DuntroonLLP.law. Um, a couple of things just off the top here. Um, Follow us on social media if you can. We'd love to have you along. Uh, we are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, and the account is PR Law Podcast, all one word, PR Law and PR Law Podcast. Scratch that and in there. Uh, and we'd also love to take questions from you as well. We've got uh, a growing audience, which is really exciting for us, and we want to address any PR, legal, employment, lawyer questions that you've got. And you can uh, tag us on social media with the hashtag PR Law Pod. So with that, Ewan, uh, let's get started. What's going on over in Toronto? Are you guys still cooped up back there? Well, of course we are. We're still cooped up. <laughs> it actually snowed here yesterday. Uh, there was a polar vortex coming through actually parts of North, North America in general. There was a, a, a huge chunk of the states that got hit with it as well. So I think that's probably a good thing in so much as it, it's keeping people indoors when they otherwise would, would like to go out. But yeah, record low temperatures here going back. I think in uh, the city of Toronto, it went back like 80 years or something like that um, before we had just made any, any Canadians who've moved away. Thankful that they've avoided that weather. Uh, <laughs> well, it, this is the it, thing. I mean, typically, typically it's it's beautiful weather here in in May. I mean, you usually get weather in sort of low 20s. It's lovely. It's also Mother's Day weekend uh, in North America. So, you know, we should give a shout out to all of the mothers. Um, particularly, I, I'd like to give a special shout out to to my wife, who is an incredible mother. And really, we should be giving the mothers just an extra general special shout out, Cam, because, uh, you know, they've really, I suspect, had a difficult time. The working mothers who are at the best of times trying to balance being a professional or working whatever whatever career they happen to work in, as well as being mothers. And right now, so many of them are working from home and trying to balance being a mother. And it, it's, it's really, I imagine, very, very challenging. My wife has been doing an incredible, incredible job. She's an awesome mom. And, Not just um, working mothers, though. I would say, uh, you know, the mothers that, that do stay at home, I mean, it's gotten a lot more difficult with everybody else staying at home along with them. Uh, I mean, it's, it's interesting when I ask people, you know, how are you doing? If they have kids and they've been locked up, usually uh, there's a, okay or you know a little bit uh a little bit of cabin cabin fever you know the act the uh, reactions i get are kind of mixed that way because i know some people with kids are kind of they are a bit stressed out now going into week what five or something that you guys are doing yeah i mean uh, you know i was chatting with a friend of mine who's a, a lawyer the other day and his wife is a doctor and they both have just insanely busy jobs at the best of times and they have two children One's two, one's five. They're trying to potty train one of them right now. And uh, I, I can't, I just can't imagine how challenging that must be. I mean, we have one three-year-old and that's challenging at the, at the best of times. But yeah, it's got to be really, really tough. I mean, you know, I, I'm constantly reading all of these stories of, oh, I'm bored and I'm at home and what should I read and what should I watch? And, you know, all the parents out there, of course, tearing their hair out thinking who are all these people that are bored and you know do they want to come over and and take care of my kid for a bit so i can i can sit and get caught up on some television or some reading or something it's been it's been challenging i don't understand people who say they're bored like i know like i get conceptually that there are people who just don't know what to do but like and i don't know 
what this says about me, but probably nothing good, but like, there's a million things that I would love to do, but I can't because work is in the way. Like I have a, a long list of books that I want to go into and just magazines that I'm subscribing to trying to feel like I'm not wasting the subscription money because I'm hardly reading them. Um, you know, long, long feature length articles that I'd like to go through, you know, I'd like to study more Chinese. I would like to go to the gym more. I mean, there's just, there's so many things or start a home business. I don't know. There's so much out there. And with the internet, you can do or learn or create all of these things. And so, plus, I mean, with Netflix, I mean, you have the whole world of entertainment um, at home. Uh, so I, I don't know. I, I've never really gotten that, but I've always been somebody who kind of finds, finds tasks or projects to work on. Yeah. And I think lots of people have, they've found all kinds of cool, interesting projects as well. I mean, I, I read that Amazon had podcast microphones, for example, on back order, because there was a lot of people who thought to themselves, hey, now might be a good time for me to learn how to podcast or learn how to do any number of things. So I think there's lots of people who are sort of, you know, doing some clever, cool entrepreneurial things at the moment. Um, but yeah, I think for 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 parents in particular, it's been challenging. You know, my, you know, my wife is also a litigator. So she has a pretty insanely busy schedule and we effectively sort of split our day in half. So she kind of takes the morning to work and, and I spend time and, and hang out with our daughter in the morning. And then we switch off in the afternoon and I kind of try and get some work done. And then we both end up working in the evening. So all that sort of happened is, you know, our, our work day, which would typically start at a certain time in the morning and end at a particular time in the afternoon. It's just one big 24 hour blur. And I, I've heard that from a lot of parents that are working. It's just like one big, long blur. You're fielding emails all day long and trying to balance that with your responsibilities as a parent. Um, and yeah, I think it's been I think it's been really difficult for a lot of a, a lot of people out there. All right. Well, let's see how long you're going to have to do that. Okay, so uh, COVID has gotten a lot better on this side of the world, but let's take a look at uh, sort of what's happening worldwide. Um, so the latest figures are, there are 4 million cases of COVID-19 globally. So it's still growing at an extremely fast rate. 1.38 million people have recovered so far and 279 people have died as a result of COVID-19. So we're over the quarter million deaths mark. And there have been 201,000 of those in the United States, which is absolutely astonishing. Uh, last week, I was looking at the numbers you and we said 66,000 deaths in the US. So they've, they, they've racked up 140,000 new deaths in a seven day period, which is actually remarkable. And it's the place that's talking about opening up the most. Um, in Hong Kong, we had another good week here. It's basically been good here now for three weeks. We had no new cases Saturday and Sunday. Uh, and most of last week, we had no new cases as well. It's now been three weeks since there's been a human to human transmission of COVID-19 in Hong Kong. It's been a very long time. Um, but we did have four cases on Friday. Again, it was people who had flown in because there are some flights coming in from countries that are harder hit. Um, but everyone on those flights is taken to a, uh, a quarantine area um, where they're held for 14 days. So there's no risk of that spreading. Uh, and the one thing I noticed when I was looking at the numbers, Ewan, is the UK. Uh, it has climbed to the fourth highest uh, in terms of deaths in the world at 200, sorry, uh, in terms of cases at 215,000 cases and 31,500 deaths, which is, uh, which is really high. And I, I find it quite ironic, uh, that the U S and the UK, you know, two of the countries that are really the hardest hit are the ones most eager to kind of get things, get things rolling again. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a, a great point. Well, and I, I mean, I read, as I'm sure you saw that it's now COVID's now starting to make its way through the White House, which of course is going to make it even more challenging for an administration that's trying to, you know, push the economy to to reopen and get everybody back to work when, you know, the powers that be themselves are now being faced with the very real threat of of infection. Yeah, I'm and I mentioned this last week a little bit. Like I'm in favor of opening. I like I I obviously understand there's some um, it's easy for us to say, well, you know, keep it locked down. We just got to go through this. We got to beat it. But if your if your livelihood depended on you working and you needed that to pay the bills, I, I can certainly see why there would be pushed open. And I think, and I'm not a, a medical expert obviously, but I think they probably can, provided there are the the requisite sort of um, safety measures in place to prevent it from spreading. You know, I was out today. I did a very long walk through Hong Kong today. And I mean, 
it's completely back to normal. I mean, the streets are just packed. I mean, we're talking about a lot of people. Um, and you, you go into restaurants, they're full. I mean, there is a rule here of eight people to a table now. Um, but I mean, you know, in Hong Kong, there's not that much room. This, the restaurant tables are close together at the best of times. You're often sitting with strangers at a small table uh, here. And, you know, in a restaurant, people have their masks off. So, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely returned here. And I think the fear there really is just a second wave because there's been so much economic damage. And I understand they want to open. But if it happens and if there's a second wave, I think there's going to be real problems because I don't think people are ready for another two months if they have to start this all over again. Yeah, well, and yet that could be a very real possibility, right? I mean, you know, as an employment lawyer, I'm I'm fixated on the job numbers because you know I'm still being bombarded with calls from from clients from from plaintiffs who have been temporarily laid off, I and mean, there's still a lot of businesses that are going through that process of, you know, they thought they were going to be able to weather the storm, and now things are starting to turn, and they're temporarily laying off employees. And I'm looking at these job numbers. I mean, Canada just released released some uh, some new numbers at the end of April. We've now lost nearly two million jobs. And again, you know, you keep keep in mind the population of Canada is just over 30 million. So, two million puts our unemployment rate at about 13 uh, percent. You know, and the numbers in the U.S. are are just as bad. I mean, the U.S. economy lost 20.5 million jobs in April. So their unemployment rate is now about 14.7% and you know and by some metrics part of me nobody told the stock market either well yeah well and i think again and even those numbers are misleading though right i mean there's some some metrics i saw a story in the associated press that was talking about as a result of um, government errors and the way that the the labor department in the us actually measures the job market that by some calculations the unemployment rate actually stands at 23.6% which is significantly higher than the 14.7 they're reporting. And really, you know, the only silver lining I can sort of see in these in these numbers in Canada and the US um, is that, you know, roughly 75% of the individuals that have been laid off, those layoffs are considered temporary. So, you know, obviously the hope is that the vast majority of these people are going to go back to work. And in some respects, that's different than sort of a typical a typical recession where it's a recession reacting to to broader economic factors. I mean, once people can get back out and these restrictions have been lifted, presumably a lot of these people are going to go back to work, but some of them won't. I mean, some of these businesses are not going to survive. I mean, we saw uh, J. Crew fold. I, saw, I don't know if you saw that in the news, Cam. And, and I think there's going to be a lot more companies that are going to going to fall over the coming weeks. Yeah, I hope it's temporary because, uh, you know, there's a possibility that, that I mean, the economy was already really hot before this, but was slowing slightly. And, um, you know, I think there would be a case anyway, anyway, for, for layoffs. I did want to mention one thing, though, just as you were saying that you and I had an alert come across my my screen about uh, Dr. Fauci in the US going under a quarantine. And I, I find this so embarrassing. And tell me if I'm out of line here. But like, we're now well into the COVID-19 crisis, like we're months into it now. And to have leaders in the White House or even just staff in the White House end up contracting this virus, it blows my mind in a way because the leadership should be setting the example. It should be the place that really sort of shows others in, a, in the U.S. and takes a leading role in terms of you know, behavior and prevention and things like that. And, you know, the excuse that, well, you know, it can affect, infect anybody and it's just out there. Like that doesn't really fly either when we're into May. I mean, we know it's out there and we know what we have to do to prevent it. And, you know, if the leaders can't even sort of keep the White House staff from infection, I mean, how can they prevent this from spreading all over the country? I, I don't see that. Yeah, you know, I th from a, a P I mean, from a PR communications perspective, it's a very, very interesting question. You, it makes you wonder what was the message to the administration internally. I mean, in Canada, for example, we had Justin Trudeau, who now he had to self isolate for a, a very specific reason. Of course, his wife um, in, was infected with COVID nineteen, and therefore he self isolated. But he's effectively remained self-isolated and he's been giving daily reports um from from his home the press have been kept at a distance most of the press in fact have been calling in uh, the same thing with the with the premier of ontario 
you know, so the the approach from the from the government itself has been one of, well, look, I mean, we've got to practice what we preach here. If we're telling people to stay home and practice social distancing, and we have to do the same thing ourselves. And I think, you know, regardless of where you fall on the political spectrum, you know, you've got we've got a liberal prime minister, we've got a conservative premier. They're both aligned um, despite their politics and the fact that we need to be they need to be seen as as practicing these measures. And then, you know, on the other hand, to your point in the United States, we, we've got an administration who only now is saying, well, you know, hey, maybe we should start quarantine and quarantining social distancing. I mean, it, why haven't they been doing that from the get go? And if you're trying to push that message on the population and encourage the population to do the same, I mean, you have to be supportive of the of the very measures you're trying to put in place. That's the part I don't get. I mean, even with the prime minister in Canada, I mean, his wife caught uh, COVID-19 quite early. I mean, not early in the overall sort of window of this uh, virus, but early enough that it's sort of understandable that we didn't have social distancing in place, really. And it was out there and, you know, people were still traveling and things like that. But the, to me, there's just no excuse for someone in the White House to be contracting this now well into the crisis when we all know about it. I mean, there's just there's no excuse for this. And it, it really is. I mean, the broader point, and I've said this to a few people, I, and I, you know, I'm on the record. I, I like the United States. I like going there. I like the country. I like what it stands for most of the time. Uh, I mean, obviously, I have my issues with it. But this crisis, and not just this crisis, but just in general over the last decade plus, it's just been sad to see the United States kind of decline the way it has. And, and you know, make no mistake, the leadership in Russia and China uh, and other countries see what's happening, especially China. They see how sort of inept the leadership has been at a national level. They see the numbers going up and um, it really fills them with optimism. It really does. They, 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 you know, there's reports of, you know, inside the Chinese leadership that they see the U S is in a really terminal decline. Um, and, and the U S isn't doing much to counter that, that belief either. Well, I think, look, I mean, even just putting the politics aside for a moment from a purely practical perspective, if the goal of, you know, the Trump administration is to get the economy humming again, to get people back to work, to try and get to a place of economic stability in advance of the of the election in November, this is not helping. Um, because again, you're going to have a very, very difficult time assuring the country that everything is okay when the White House only now, when it's trying to push an agenda of getting people back to work, is is being infected. So even from a purely practical perspective, it doesn't align with the political interests, right? Regardless of where you happen to fall on that on on that spectrum. So I think it's going to be it's going to be really fascinating just to see where this goes over the over the coming weeks and the coming months, particularly in in the U.S. For sure. Um, you and one of my favorite parts of this show is your legal section. So let's get to that on the other side. Continue the debate with us on social media. Join us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at PR Law Podcast. All one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Send us your questions now by email to askusatprlawpodcast.com. That's all one word, askusatprlawpodcast.com. Or on social media with the hashtag PRLawPod. That's hashtag P-R-L-A-W-P-O-D. However, I do think we need to come up with a better name than legal section. <laughs> so maybe give that a think. Uh, and we're open to suggestions on that, too. We're supposed to be a bit more creative doing this show, but there you go. What have you got on deck today, Ewan? Well, you know, as, as countries are starting to gradually reopen and get back to work, I wanted to, to take a look at some of the, the industries that will most likely be hit hard by COVID-related litigation. I was, you know, I was looking at something that was uh, drafted by DLA Piper. They're a huge multinational law firm offices, uh, you know, in several countries around the world. And, you know, according to a, to a paper that they did, there were just under 700 COVID related legal actions and 176 class actions filed in the U.S. by the end of April. You know, and in the numbers in Canada, they're much lower. We're, you know, we're looking at about 17 related class actions filed across the country. But I expect these numbers are going to explode. Um, and I know myself and a lot of lawyers across Canada in all different um, areas of law, we're keeping an eye on the U.S. to sort of see how some of this litigation plays out, where it goes. 
And, you know, really, we're talking all kinds of industries. I think some of the big ones, and that's sort of what I wanted to talk about today, are going to be nursing homes. I mean, nursing homes have been really, really hit hard because, of course, you know, they're they're filled with people who are who are high risk for for covid. And we've already seen um, a 50 million dollar class action that's been launched against Rivera, which is a long term care home here in Canada uh, with families alleging that the homes lack proper sanitation protocols and adequate testing to prevent the spread of covid. Uh, they're not going to be alone. There's been a lot of complaints in uh, among nursing homes of uh, the families making similar al- raising similar allegations. That's going to be one area. I think we're going to see companies failing to take adequate steps to protect employees. You know, we we talked about the Walmart case cam in Illinois a few weeks back, where there was an employee who uh, who was diagnosed with COVID nineteen. Um, and the family has subsequently sued, alleging that Walmart didn't, didn't keep employees safe. Um, we've got insurance companies denying claims. You know, we talked about the force majeure clauses last week. I think they're going to hit hard airlines, cruise lines, schools. I mean, just, I think these are going to be some of the big, the big areas and big industries that are going to really get slapped with, uh, with a lot of litigation when, when everybody kind of gets back to work. Right. So on the, um, on the Walmart issue, I just want to point people back to episode three. Uh, that's where we talked about that. And we'll put a link to that in our show notes as well. Um, on these issues though, you and like, I understand, especially if someone has passed away and, you know, was infected with COVID-19 and passed away or these facilities, you know, had some involvement in that. But I'm wondering, like with nursing homes, for instance, I mean, when COVID-19 broke out, it was, I mean, we knew pretty early that it, you know, mostly affected older people, uh, making nursing homes particularly susceptible to it. But like, what is the reasonable expectation that they would put in place, you know, protocols or guidelines to deal with this when there was so little information out there about what it was? Um, And I, I know I'm asking you to speculate here, but like, I'm just sort of curious where you would stand on that because if if I'm a nursing home I kind of would I would I would look out and say look we didn't nobody knew this governments couldn't even respond to this you know how do you expect this nursing home on this small street in a town small town to be able to to manage this threat if if states couldn't do it yeah i mean i think you know defendants in these sorts of cases they're going to have to prove on some level that their actions whatever actions they did take were reasonable in the circumstances and whatever actions they didn't take were reasonable in the circumstances. So, you know, one of the ways you can, you can try and measure that is what were similar industries doing at the time. So if you're looking at nursing homes, for example, what were other nursing homes doing to try and, and, and sanitize and, uh, and keep people safe, you know, or what ought they to have been doing? I mean, that I think is going to be one of the things that, that courts will inevitably, will inevitably look at in these circumstances. And that seems so hard to determine because you say, what ought they should have, I'm trying to get the phrasing right. What should they have done basically? And I I guess like, it's clear today what they should have done, but was it clear at the time? I mean, I guess that would be my, again, I'm putting myself in, in the position of being sued for something like this. I mean, I guess my defense would be like, look, we didn't. We know now, but we didn't know then. Um, and I, I don't know if that's a susceptible, a, a sufficient defense or not. Well, yeah, I, I think where a lot of businesses are going to get themselves into trouble and, you know, you make a you make a great point in terms of, well, but they didn't know they didn't know. Well, but at a certain point, they knew. I mean, at a certain point, we had governments advising businesses, uh, stay home, you're, tell your employees they should stay home. And we know that were those biz- there were businesses out there that were turning a blind eye to those instructions saying, ah, I know, you know what, this thing's overblown. No, no, no. I want you to keep coming into work, keep coming into work. And you've got a lot of vulnerable employees in a lot of industries that they're concerned and they're scared for their jobs. And I see this all the time in employment law where they effectively are going along with their wishes, uh, with the wishes of their employers because they're concerned for the safety of their jobs. They don't want to lose their jobs. Um, you know, particularly those individuals who are living paycheck to paycheck, they don't want to rock the boat. So, you know, they, they effectively follow the orders of whatever their employers are saying. Well, but these employers on some level 
have to be there has to be some liability there if they were in direct contravention of instructions that were provided by the government i.e. you have to social you have to social distance if you're not an essential uh, an essential industry or an essential profession then your employees should be working from home i mean for those employers who were in direct contravention to that yeah i mean i think you know there there has to be some liability there yeah. Well, I mean, that's a, to me, that's a pretty cut and dried case. Like if the government says you must do A, B, and C and a, a company doesn't do those things and someone suffers as a result, then, then, then that makes sense. I guess what I'm thinking too, like if, if a company, if a company asks an employee to do something that ends up putting that employee in harm's way, I mean, if the employee says, I don't want to do that and is forced, that's one situation, Frequently, the employee might not know that it's dangerous either, so may have just accepted the employer's instructions and gone ahead and done it. Um, but both sides were negligent or both sides didn't know the risk at the time. And I don't know how that would be managed either in that case, because it's, it's really easy in hindsight to look back and say, OK, well, you know, all of this should have happened this way. Um, but I, most of the time, I, I don't believe that companies or people are trying to do something negligent or something that's going to hurt their staff. I know it does happen, but like a lot of people have good intentions, but you know, the result didn't match the intentions. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, of, of course. And, and look, I mean, much of this is purely speculative at this point because we don't really have a lot of precedent litigation that we can look at to say, oh, well, this is how courts have decided these issues in the past, because this isn't really something um, that we've, we've had to look at or had to deal with in the past. So where does it go? Yeah, I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I think on some level we're probably going to see governments in, in, you know, in, in several different jurisdictions, be it, you know, provincially or federally here in Canada or in the United States or in Great Britain, where I think the government's going to have to intervene and introduce some legislation that is going to let employers off the hook to some extent. You know, one, one great example that we can look to the past for was, you know, after after 9-11, um, the airline industries were effectively given, a, you know, a free pass by the by the government um, and protected from from litigation for all the airlines that had to ground flights and cancel flights. And, you know, there was a lot of litigation that was that, that was born out of that. And the governments effectively took the position in the, in the US that, well, look, airlines couldn't possibly have foreseen such an incident, such an act of terrorism, and really they shouldn't be held liable. And if they were, I mean, if the government didn't intervene in that regard, then, you know, you would have a completely bankrupt industry. And this is where, you know, you can sort of look at the legal issue on one hand, but then you have to look at things from a a purely practical perspective. On the other hand, if every employer is going to be held liable for having to shut down, you know, in the employment context, for example, we talk about employees who are temporarily laid off. Well, you know, in in the specific example of Ontario, did they have a temporary layoff clause in in their contract? Well, if not, then that employee can take the position they've been constructively dismissed, which is effectively, you know, akin to to an employer terminating your employment. But, you know, you can say that that's sort of the legal precedent. But what about the practical? Are we then practically going to say that every employer who is temporarily laid off an employee given what's what's going on has constructively dismissed all of their employees in every industry across the board i mean the courts would just be overloaded with litigation around this issue and they'd all right. go bankrupt and, or a lot of them yeah, would go bankrupt in the process right right yeah i mean that that makes sense and this is why this is going to be fascinating to watch because i mean this this hasn't even started yet really i mean we're still in the pandemic in many places and so this is going to go on for years and years and years after this i'm sure yeah yeah and and again you know i we'll we'll see how it plays out but again just sort of in terms of the overall industries you've got yeah nursing homes companies the vis-a-vis their employees airlines the cruise line sued for negligence schools um well, and then companies such as there. sorry let me hear you in for schools because i think schools is something that i think a lot of our listeners would you know have firsthand experience with mm-hmm. i mean if if you had kids in school i know there's you know public school is well by the definition it's free in a lot of places but i mean a lot of people are paying tuition for all various levels of schooling and of course schools have been shut down so our parents entitled to a refund i guess it's not even just schools like if you bought you know season tickets to you know the houston rockets 
in the NBA and it's been shut down. Like how much, uh, what, I mean, what's the probability that these people can have their, have their money refunded because you talk about going bankrupt. I mean, this is a real threat as well, because if these companies have to pay this back in a lot of cases, it could uh, trigger even more financial hardship. Yeah. Well, look, I wish I knew the answer. Great, great question. Um, yeah, I mean, with schools, specifically post-secondary institutions, private schools, yeah, I mean, what you know, what are they going to do? You've got a lot of students who are saying, well, look, I'm not getting the quality um, of an education that I would otherwise receive, and I'm paying good money for it. So there should be some sort of abatement in terms of my tuition fees, if not a full refund, should I, you know, wish to to sort of drop out if you're in university or, or, or cancel your enrollment. Uh, yeah. I mean, wh- where is this going to go? What, what are the obligations on the, on the schools? I, I mean, I, I have no idea. Great question. It, it's really going to be interesting to see where, where this goes. And again, from, you know, from a legal perspective, you know, I don't want to nerd out on these, these issues too much, but I mean, this is going to be precedent forming case law. I mean, this sort of case law is going to inform how the courts move going forward for for years to come. We're going to look back on this case law and say, well, hey, in that situation of a pandemic, what happened? What happened across all of these industries in, in education, in nursing homes, in the in the airline industry? What what did courts do then to sort of inform uh, what they'll do in in future instances? Should we unfortunately find ourselves in a, in another pandemic in our lifetime? Yeah, this is going to provide us with endless, fascinating content, uh, I think, for quite a while. Yeah, um, I think so our, too. Yeah, uh, I, I have a, a really interesting thing. One of my favorite subjects to talk about actually coming up next. Show your support to the PR and Law Podcast by making a one-time donation or setting up a subscription with us on Patreon. Every little bit helps us keep the lights on and bring the show to you each week. If you'd like to chip in, please visit PRNLawPodcast.com. That's PRNLawPodcast.com. Click support the show. Thanks for helping us out. You know, one of the most interesting things to me, Ewan, is when people, either celebrities, um, you know, or, or very prominent business people or athletes or whomever who's very high profile, ends up doing something embarrassing or bad and they're their reputation is immediately tarnished and there's a bit of a scandal out of it. And um, because how they respond is absolutely fascinating because a lot of times, I mean, some of these people do have uh, publicists and things like that, but oftentimes they don't and they go ahead and try and fix it. And sometimes fixing it makes it worse. And so did you hear this week about the story of Brendan Leipzig? I did not know. All right. He was uh, an NHL player. Actually, I think he's he's a, a relatively young player. He's bounced around to several different teams. Um, and he actually had a Instagram conversation. He was direct messaging with some of his friends. And there were some, I think his brother was in there and a couple of minor league hockey players. Uh, Brendan Leipzig uh, was a player for the Washington Capitals. And he's actually kind of a nobody. It's not important really who he is, but it is important what he did. And I'm actually going to throw this to Nessen, which is a broadcast outlet in Boston, to provide a bit of an overview. Wednesday showed the worst of social media when Brendan Leipzig's friend's Instagram was hacked and his group messages were posted all over Twitter. Those messages were disgusting and the NHL has now released a statement. NHL Public Relations tweeted, quote, The National Hockey League strongly condemns the misogynistic and reprehensible remarks made by players Brendan Leipzig and Jack Roadwalt in a private group chat that has surfaced on social media. There is no place in our league for such statements, attitudes, and behaviors, no matter the forum. We will address this inexcusable conduct with the clubs and players involved. All right. So she sort of gave you an overview there. Basically, uh, he had an Instagram conversation with his with his brothers and or with one brother and with some friends. And that conversation was extremely misogynistic. How somebody got into his Twitter account uh, is still a bit of a, or sorry, his Instagram account is still a bit of a mystery. Uh, but somebody did, and they managed to post uh, those screenshots online. And you, and honestly, I, I can't even say what was in those screenshots because it was so graphic and it was so derogatory. And I guess the, the question, 
Yeah, Sorry, I mean, does he have, does this guy have a, I, I mean, it seems like an odd coincidence that his Instagram account ha- happens to be hacked and there's all of this crazy, you know, misogynistic content in it. I mean, does this guy have a, have a history of doing this sort of thing or any prior instances? No, he doesn't. And I think, you know, what's interesting to me a little bit is the hack has so far not really been investigated. I've been following the news coverage of this instant incident and really the focus has been on his private private messages and i've got a copy here um, of his apology so again i want to stress in these messages without saying what they actually said i mean there was a photo of uh, his former teammate um you know with his wife and their young child and he made a very derogatory remark about his teammate's wife's weight uh, there was a lot of references to doing coke, to um, you know sleeping with many women, and the way they described it, it was extremely vulgar. And and um, I mean, it, w- it was just it was kind of an ugly chat group, to be honest. And you know, as I went through some of the messages, I mean, one of the one of the things that I felt was that he he seemed very actually quite sad or miserable or something, not very happy uh, based on s- some of the text um, that was in there. But here's here's the text of his apology that he posted uh, to Twitter. He has closed his Instagram account, FYI. Uh, but here's what he said. Yesterday, my friend's Instagram account was hacked and an individual circulated images that are representative of private conversations I was a part of. I fully recognize how inappropriate and offensive these comments are and sincerely apologize to everyone for my actions. I am committed to learning from this and becoming a better person by taking time to determine how to move forward in an accountable, meaningful way. I am truly sorry. What's your first reaction when you hear that, Ewan? I'm glad you hadn't seen this story because I'm going to put you on the spot. <laughs> well, I mean, sure. I, I mean, I guess it says all of the things that you would generally expect it to say. I mean, the problem is like instances we've seen in the past of professional athletes making racist comments um, or misogynist comments. It's it's not as though they didn't know that these comments were inappropriate or wrong before they were found out. So, you know, to sort of do this, this 180 of, oh no, hey, I recognize that it's bad and I'm 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 gonna look inwards and look to myself and try and become a better person. I you know, I I just don't buy it. You've been making these comments for years. It's bad for the NHL. It's bad for hockey because of course once again it sort of reinforces all of those hockey jock stereotypes. So I can understand why the uh, the NHL's come down so hard on it. But I mean in terms of an apology it's it, it, it's kind of empty and rehearsed in all of those sorts of ways that we're accustomed to seeing in professional sports. So you know what I find fascinating about your answer is he, he, he in there twice, he apologized twice. He explained what he did was inappropriate and he said he was going to get better. But yet you felt it was disingenuous. And actually, if you look at some of the replies under his Twitter, uh, under the post, which I will share in the show notes as well, 100% people say they don't believe it. The apology was weak. It's disappointing. You know, no one believes this, things like that. And again, as a PR person, I find this fascinating because I don't think people think about this much. People think if you say the right thing, then that's how you deal with it. But he he actually, if, if you look at the words and stuff that he used, he did say a lot of the things people would expect him to say. So why didn't it come across? Like why, what was it in this you and that just sort of made you feel that it was disingenuous? And I apologize again for putting you on the spot. We didn't rehearse this at all. Um, but like what, because he did apologize in there. So what, it was it the tone? Like, what was it? Well, again, I think it's because it was clearly vetted um, by a professional. I suspect he probably worked in tandem with the NHL before releasing a statement because once the NHL is involved, they're going to want to try and control the message as best they can. So the last thing they would want would be one of their players effectively going rogue and then trying to you know, cover up for the issue by only making matters worse. So I'm sure they probably communicated with a PR rep that that works on behalf of the Players Association or the NHL um, to, to draft a statement. It doesn't read like anything that this guy would actually have written himself, particularly given, and I'm again, I'm not familiar with any of the messages that were in the contents of these Instagram posts. However, if they are as vulgar and offensive as um, as, as you suggest they are, then that's not the kind of guy that's then going to turn around and draft a very, very polished, articulate, succinct statement of apology. It just doesn't make sense. And when it doesn't make sense in that regard, 
it's inauthentic. You know, in, in, in law, we often talk about the smell test, right? Somebody makes a legal argument, you get a demand letter shows up at your, your office or a statement of claim and you read it. And, you know, things can pass a particular legal threshold or meet a particular legal threshold, but sometimes they just don't pass the smell test. And this just does not pass the smell test for me at all. You know, we use actually the same the same terminology, the smell test on PR, because you, you, exactly in this kind of statement. Yeah, we read it and go, wait a sec. There's something not right here. Now, my understanding is the NHL was not involved in this statement because this leaked and he put this out quite quickly. And it was days later that the NHL uh, decided to, to deal with him and uh, the Washington Capitals, the team that he was playing for, uh, put him on waivers with the intention of terminating the contract. And I suspect he will never play another game in the NHL just based on the way. I mean, it wasn't even just women in, in the posts. He has a couple of line mates, I guess, in Washington. And there was a picture of them with their families. And he said something like losers or something like that. Like, he was very dismissive of everyone, everything that came in there, which is what gave me the impression that, you know, he's probably uh, a miserable guy. Um, I do think there's one thing I wanted to point out here, though, which is that people don't believe his apology. And so, you know, why is that? And I don't know if he had help. You're right. It is written much, much better than his Instagram uh, uh, messages were. Um, but I gave this some thought and I was looking at it and I thought, you know, there, there really are four key things when something like this happens to somebody to really stress. And I think the first thing, you know, and I hope none of our listeners end up in a situation like this, but if so, actually, let me digress here just really quickly, because these were not public posts. These were private messages. And I think that does change it a little bit. If he was posting things publicly, um, that's a lot more open and transparent and it means he's sort of you know, really standing behind it. But should he be vilified for something private? I actually think we should deal with this question first, Ewan, because I mean, it, should he be allowed to sort of get off scot-free because it was, it, this was never meant for other people's eyes. And I, I'm sure if you leaked some of your conversations or mine, actually, I'm pretty sure they won't be this bad. <laughs> We're not going to be talking like this, but I'm sure there are some things that we said that we probably would, would feel very uncomfortable um, going public. Do you think that makes a difference? Um, yeah, I mean, I think on, I, I think on some level it, it does for sure. I mean, this was never intended to see the light of day. Um, but again, part of the problem now, if let's say hypothetically he had released these in a public forum, I mean, from, from a legal perspective, again, specifically, I'm going to talk about Ontario as a jurisdiction, you know, you're a representative of the company that you work for. So if you're out and about and you're making disparaging remarks about, you know, colleagues, your employer, the company at large, and that inflicts some form of damage on the company, be it on the brand or someone in earshot works for a competitor or knows the person that you're talking about. I mean, that could be, that could be cause for, for discharge on, on the, uh, on the part of that employee. They could literally lose their job over something like that, um, depending on the context, of course. So, you know, from in the NHL's perspective, this is harming their brand. So they are going to take it seriously. And I wouldn't be surprised, um, if they, if they effectively say you're done with the league game over, but to your point, it wasn't released publicly. Um, it was released in a, in, a, in a private context, and he was subsequently hacked. So I don't know. I mean, that that does sort of complicate complicate matters. And again, I'm sure depending on the you know the sort of the governing jurisdiction on this, the the legal implications are going to be you know different in a particular state relative to another state or a province. So, you know, I'm, I'm sort of, again, from a nerdy legal perspective, I'm thinking of jurisdictional issues and how they might, they might address this problem. Yeah. Well, I, I, I do have some sympathy. This is the only area I have some sympathy for him because, um, he is a young 20 something guy who is making, I mean, it's not a huge millionaire or anything. He's a fourth line plug, but I mean, he still has a good salary and he's traveling around North America. And I mean, he's a, he's a professional athlete. Um, so I, I like I understand that part, but I think the I understand how young guys may talk partially that way. But what's interesting in talking to sort of people involved in the sports world that his his language was even outlandish for the sports world, that maybe this is something that people would talk like, you know, 20, 30 years ago 
or more. But that's not that common now. It might be here and there, but that his comments really were quite quite extreme, even for the position um, that he was in. But the fact that it was intended to be private and how embarrassing this is for him as well, I, I do have sympathy there. Because I, I think, you know, if you if you and I, I've said this for a long time, there will be some day when, you know, everyone's emails will be hacked and stored in a database somewhere and you can search someone's name and see everything that they've ever written. I mean, you would um, you'd be embarrassed for some things, I'm sure. Um, and so I, I get that part, but I'm not uh, I'm not giving him a pass on, on on the language that he used and the damage that he caused, um, which you know was bad enough that I, I don't see how he can even walk into another locker room you know, with people who know who he is and especially the targets of some of his messages. Um, it's just it's not going to work. Yeah, well, and I and and I think you know the NHL sort of in a uh, in a difficult position here because you know the NHL has a branding problem right now, right? I mean, it's it's it recently went through, and, and again, I don't I don't follow the NHL closely, but I've certainly um, been aware of the NHL for all the wrong reasons. I mean, the issues with coaches verbally abusing um, and psychologically abusing players that 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 was a big story not too long ago. And then something like this, again, it just, it, it really, really impacts the NHL's brand and the ability to sort of move on as kind of a wholesome game that's, that's for families and something that, you know, if you're a parent, you want to encourage your child to, to play uh, as they grow up. I mean, this just reinforces all of the wrong messages and all of those date really really dated stereotypes about the hockey jock that it is still um in, inherently a, a misogynistic sport that's problematic so i'm not surprised that the nhl will want to make an example of this guy and say you know what this is not reflective of our game this is not reflective of the players who play it it's not reflective of the culture of our sport of the families who play it at the local level and community levels and, you know, we condemn this 100% and this has no place in our game. They have to come out and make an example of this guy. You know, I want to I want to really emphasize something that you just said. Uh, you tied this to uh, an issue um, which our audience might not be familiar with earlier in the year where an NHL coach uh, had, had made very racist remarks to a black player that he had in the United States. And then it turned out there was a lot of other abuse uh, that was happening. And you tied these two things together. And I, and I want people to think about this because oftentimes when people are in a crisis or something bad happens or they're taking a risk, um, they're thinking in terms of their particular risk or their particular consequences. But in the public's mind, and this is hard to articulate unless you have an example, these lines are drawn between these events. So in a way, this makes the coaching case worse because it, talk, it basically is saying that there is a culture problem that exists in the game. It's not a coaching problem or it's not just an older problem coaches problem um that this is prevalent at all ages and you know between coaches and players and, and that's why stuff like this is damaging and you know in my job this comes up a lot people say well this this is just this case and i say yes but if if this happens it will be viewed in the context of this this and this and this conclusion will be drawn and that's often hard to hard to articulate but it's but it's important um you know to consider when, when doing these sorts of things yeah. Well, I mean, and then that sort of begs the question, Cam. So let's, you know, I want to put you on the spot for a second here. Let's say that um, this particular player came to you and said, you know, look, this is the story. This is what I've done. Can you help me put together a response? I mean, what would your what would your counsel be in that regard in yeah. terms of what the statement should say? Well, you know, I was I was I just mentioned about the sort of four key points that you want to address in something like this. Um, I actually wrote a article on this on uh, my blog. It actually had to do with the United Airlines case uh, when David Dow was uh, knocked out as he was being dragged off the plane because United's response, their initial response to that was unbelievably tone deaf. And, and, and it's similar in the sense that, you know, something bad happened and they've got to take responsibility. So I will link to this in the show notes for sort of a longer explanation. Uh, but there's four things. And I, I think the first thing is acknowledgement of the severity of the crime or the infraction or of, of what happened. You know, this, this is extremely painful, I'm sure, to some of the people that were named in this and the way he refers to certain people. So it's hurtful for them. I think it's hurtful for his own family, you know, for this, something like this to happen. Uh, it's obviously hurtful for, for fans and, and it's damaging to the league. 
you're right. It's damaging to, to, to the entire reputation of the game. And I'm not sure he was considering all of that. He looked at this like uh, the impression I get based on the response is he looked at this as something that um, went badly. It's embarrassing. And he wants to apologize and get it over with and move on. And I, I think it sort of left me with the impression that he doesn't recognize quite how bad this is. And so my first advice would definitely be to include more language that explains that, you know, that says, I, I don't want to write it while I'm sitting on the radio here, but I mean, something that really, really makes people understand that he gets it. And that's really important because you can't begin to forgive somebody or take them seriously until you understand they get it. I mean, that's the first point. The second one, uh, sorry, so these, these are kind of merged. So the first one is acknowledgement uh, of what he did. And then the second one is acknowledgement of the damage. So those are sort of the two first things that, that you'd want to do um, off the top. The third one, take full responsibility. And so this, I mean, all of these are, are linked closely together. But in here, um, he said he recognizes how inappropriate and offensive these comments are, and he apologizes. I do think he has to go a lot farther than that. I think he has to explain that this was awful misogynistic language and even use terms like that to really, again, this sort of goes back to number two and number one. So the audience understands that he gets it, that he knows what they're thinking. Um, cause you can't, you just can't take somebody seriously until, until you're aware of that. And then the fourth one is, is the concrete steps. There's gotta be some action taken. So he mentions in here, I'm committed to learning and becoming a better person. That, that doesn't mean anything. I don't know what that means. Neither, I, neither, know. neither do I. I mean, it begs the very, very simple question. How are you committed to learning yeah. to becoming what a better you, person? What exactly. are you prepared to do yeah. to learn, to become a better person? Yep. Absolutely. So you look at, I mean, United had a similar response, but eventually, you know, they came out with, you know, revised policies on seat arrangements and, you know, all kinds of stuff like that to say, look, we're going to change. And if you're going to change, you have to show them how you're going to change. Otherwise, this just feels empty. He's saying, sorry, he feels bad. He got caught and he's going to be better. I, I mean, I don't, I don't know what that means. I don't know what he's going to do today or tomorrow to try and fix this. Well, yeah, wasn't there some part of, part of the statement at the beginning saying my friends posted something? My, I mean, when you when you read it, and again, I've never, I haven't even seen the statement. It'd probably be easier if I had it up in front of me. But when you initially read it, one of the things that 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 sort of didn't didn't well again didn't pass the smell test was it it seemed as though he was trying to place some blame on his friends' accounts as if he was sort of just you know in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um. He sort of. So, I mean, the, the hacking was of a conversation that, that he was a group conversation. And it sounds like, so it's private. There's private direct messaging on Instagram. And it sounds like one of the other members of that conversation had their Instagram account hacked. And again, I don't even know for sure if it was hacked because hacking is used as such a catch-all term. Like even if it was, you know, that guy's girlfriend who picked up the phone and saw the conversations and then sent them around. Like, I wouldn't call that hacked. <laughs> That's just, you left your phone unattended. Right. Uh, hacked implies that somebody broke in somehow illicitly. Uh, for some reason, I doubt that's the case, but, um, that's the, that's why he made reference of a friend though. Um, well, and that I'm also sure begs the question from Instagram's perspective. What well, I mean, has, has Instagram issued any statement about this? Because I mean, the allegation that their system has been hacked, therefore speaks to, you know, a potential security issue within the platform that may be of concern to, to other users. I mean, I would think if I was a rep from Instagram and I had the ability to determine whether or not the account was in fact hacked or whether this was just, you know, to your point, maybe, a, you know, someone else happened to see the phone and then circulated it themselves, that they may have a vested interest in getting to the bottom of that as well. Yeah. And if the hack, if it was a legitimate hack, that would be something that I would consider to put into the apology because you do have to take responsibility, but a full account of what happened is also helpful. So if it was, you know, this account was locked down and was accessed illicitly by, you know, somebody in this area of the world, Instagram is looking into it, you know, but this is very embarrassing and then go through, I mean, it just provides a little more for us to try and sympathize with him. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. the comments are outrageous, but if he can walk us through what happened, 
we do like even now I, I mentioned I look at him a little bit as a victim. I mean, I do have some sympathy for for that the fact that this is not meant to be public. But I think he would go farther with that if he did provide that explanation. The fact that he didn't makes me think that there was no hack. If there was a hack, he would have reported it to Inst- to Instagram or whomever um, to deal with. So I'm highly skeptical. Right. Well, and I, I imagine there's probably a whole host of Instagram users themselves who are like really hacked. I, I don't know if I I don't know if I buy that, which sort of further compromises the legitimacy and authenticity of the statement to begin with. Right. Right. So, I mean, going over those again, uh, acknowledge what you did. Acknowledge the damage done. I actually think this is the most important one. Number three, take full responsibility. And number four, explain concrete steps that you will be taking to improve. And I think if it's missing any of those, it's just not going to work. I also think that people are very sophisticated now. They've seen a lot of apologies. There's a lot of scandals. I mean, this, this is not new. This reminds me of the president's chat with Billy Bush there before the uh, 2018 election or 2016 election. So, I mean, we're, we're, we're used to seeing this sort of thing and we can smell, you're right. It's a smell test. People, people gave this the smell test and it, it failed. Um, yeah, I mean, so. what what about Cam? I mean, I I don't want to belabor the point, but I mean, what about length, the actual length of a post? Like, I know in the age of social media, and I think that's part of the problem, right? People tweet something, they tweet something stupid, and then they subsequently have to apologize for the stupid tweet. But then the apology is really only as long as a tweet itself, which more often than not is really insufficient length um, to sort of highlight all of the issues and concerns and adequately address them. I mean, is there any sort of guidance in terms of how, you know, how long should an apology be in a situation like this? Yeah. And that's a really good question, Ewan, because actually there's not a set answer for that. And I think this is difficult for people to understand too. When, when there's a, a case like this or any case, it really is, you want your PR person to sort of consider all the factors. So like what happened, who's affected, what kind of crime slash infraction is it? What is the news cycle right now? Like what are, what are the expectations? Was it on social media or not? Like all of these things go into the pot to kind of come out with the right, the right response. So it's, it's very difficult to answer that with a set like number of words. But one thing that, that has been going on for the last couple of years, and Brendan Leipzig did this, is writing in the notes app on their iPhone where there's more room and then taking a screenshot and posting that. And that's exactly what he did. And there's been other celebrities that have have done the same thing because it does give them a bit more room. But the fact it's written that way also tells me that maybe it wasn't that thought through (laughs) because if it's just in the notes app, it sort of seems like it might've been something they wrote quickly on their phone. Um, And so I noticed that. Hmm, Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. So um, yeah, it's, it, it, please people stay out of trouble because this really is embarrassing and make sure that if, if you don't want to avoid this kind of attention or this kind of possibility, just don't say these kinds of things. That's the easiest way. Amen to that. You know, I give that, I give that counsel um, to people and clients all the time. You know, if, if don't make a digital footprint, employees, if you're drafting emails to a colleague, imagine and draft it as if you were writing it to your employer themselves. So if there's any content in that email that you're circulating from your workplace email, Um, that you think that your employer themselves, if they were to sit down and read it, would find it inappropriate, then don't write it. Don't put it in writing. Pick up the phone, have a call with that employee and, and, and do it that way or meet in person. Don't create a written record. As soon as there's a written record, the internet remembers everything. Digital servers remember everything. It can come back to haunt you when you least expect it. Yeah. I, and this sounds like common sense. It's, Seems like people don't really think about it. And I know that it seems like everything is private and personal, especially when you're in, you know, chats with your friends, but like this stuff could go out there. I mean, everything that you put into a phone or a computer could potentially go public. And I mean, you look at the cases like the Ashley Madison case from years ago, you know, the adultery finder app. I mean, all of those names, all of those customers names were were posted online. And so 
you just don't know when it's going to happen, but you know what's going to happen. You know that there's going to be a lot more of this coming forward. And so you do want to protect yourself. Just be careful. Use the most secure services that you can, but but never assume that, that something uh, is completely secure. Yeah. And I think, you know, I don't want to beat up on the, on, 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 on boomers because I know they're a, a certain source of, of ridicule these days. Um, but there really is sort of a generational issue here as well. I, I mean, you really, for whatever reason, and I guess it's simply a matter of older generations, boomers in particular, didn't grow up with this sort of digital technology. And I don't think they learned a lot of these fundamental lessons in terms of securing data and data being stored in servers and uh, posted on the internet where it exists forever. So there, there's a certain inherent mindset in the culture that wasn't built around these issues from the get-go. Whereas, you know, if you look at millennials, I mean, a digital footprint has been a part of their, their life from, from the get-go, right? Their parents were taking photos of them and posting them. Um, they, they existed in a high-speed internet world that digital footprint they've been keenly aware of from a young age. And I suspect that they're probably taking care of their data in a completely different way, perhaps for better, perhaps for worse um, than previous generations. Yeah. You know, I, you could be right. I think there is some merit to what you say. I also think the opposite can kind of be true because um, you know, sometimes because younger people have grown up with this, it's so much more natural to just share whatever. Whereas sometimes older people do think more. And actually, what you said is absolutely true, because I think of a lot of older people are worried about security. Um, and a lot of younger people are worried about security. So I don't know what point I'm making. Um, other than, yeah, it does come it does come naturally to some people. And I, I don't want to tell people not to share on social. Like, I, I don't, I mean, I don't share everything about myself on social, but I'm fairly liberal about what I share, although it's been getting less and less as I get older. Um but I, like, I encourage people to engage online and to do things and share stuff, but just think about it. Just don't, don't let it become an auto, automatic thing. Don't be on autopilot. Like, give some thought to what you're putting just for a second before you press send or publish. Um, you know, that would probably save people from some problems. Amen. All right, Ewan. Uh, I, this show flies by. I am shocked. Um, so let's just uh, wrap this up. And I wanted to talk about any recommendations. There's one thing. I did read one thing this week uh, that kind of stuck with me and I ended up posting it on LinkedIn earlier in the week. And I actually had um, a guy I worked with at the, at the Hong Kong stock exchange message me from Boston where he's under lockdown. And he said, thank you for sharing that. That was really interesting. And, uh, and then I thought, okay, good. So people are getting value out of this. It's, it's an article that was published in uh, the most recent Atlantic and I, it's on the website and I'll share a note. But it's about how people are unhappy in retirement. And um, it really looks at why that might be the case. And it theorizes that to live a happy life, you have to sort of beat your own demons. And what he means by that is that, you know, we go to college and, you know, we try and do well and we go to the workforce and we climb the ladder and you become successful and maybe you're your career is, has just taken off and you've done very well, but perhaps you do something like Brendan Leipzig did, or perhaps you end up in an affair, or perhaps you've done something um, illicit in some way, and how that reflects on your own personal weakness. And some people get into retirement where they're not working anymore and they miss that. And so they let these demons play a bigger part in their lives that maybe they're, they sort of let their guard down a bit. They go down different paths because they need some kind of stimulation that they're no longer getting from work. And that that is taking people down some wrong paths and resulting in some problems and how that can actually ruin your reputation. Whatever you had built up over your years in your career could be risked by some sort of personal failure or personal flaw that, that, that was unaddressed previously. And I think it's a good reminder. I think it's it's a really interesting piece for, especially if you're, you know, a professional and you're successful and, you know, you're in a career that's really fulfilling and you're, you're doing very well to really think beyond that, that after you've beaten sort of the career and you've achieved what you want about really looking at yourself and seeing where, where you can improve uh, to, you know, to really find that kind of fulfillment. And it was, um, it's definitely a great article and I, and I do want to post that in our show notes. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, 
It sounds like, and again, I haven't read the article, but you know, one of the things that comes to mind for me in, in what you've described is also knowing when to pack it in, right? Knowing that, you know what, I've, I've achieved what I needed to achieve in my particular profession. And perhaps now it's time to move on to some other things. I mean, my profession in particular is, is, can be often be pretty bad at this. Um, you see lawyers that stick around and keep practicing long after they should. And I think, unfortunately, that's because they've, they've spent so many years working around the clock and their practices have become, you know, and, and have been so all encompassing that they sort of forgot to develop or pursue hobbies, you know, other, other things in their life that are fulfilling such that when they sort of come to that place of retirement, they don't really know what to do with themselves. So they just keep practicing law. Um, and I think that that's, you know, there's something kind of sad about that. Now I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of, a lot of lawyers that do stick around would say, well, you've got it all wrong. I continue to practice because I love it and I'm passionate about the law and why would I stop? Um, but I don't think that that's always the case. I think that yeah. quite often it's that they can't let go, you know, and you don't just have to look in law. You can look at professional sports. I know we talked about the last dance, um, that, that, um, ESPN bit that's on, uh, also on Netflix here in Canada about, um, the final run of the Chicago bulls with Michael Jordan. And Jordan talks about that, you know, saying like, I want to go out on top. You got to know when it's time to pack it in and to stop and to move on to other things. And some people get that and some people don't. Yeah, I find it sad as well. I, I think, um, and I understand the allure. I think if, if you like your work, you like what you do day to day, you're a very fortunate individual. And I think, you know, I think both of us have been fairly lucky in that regard. Like I, I when I wake up, I don't dread going into the office. Like I, I, I like to go in. I like, you know, what I'm, what I'm working on and what I do. Um, but, and it is a big part of my life, but I never, I never want to let my work, my professional work take over who I am. Because who I am is much more than just that one professional role. And it's unfortunate because, as you know, in life, you, you know, you're at a dinner party or a networking event. And the first thing people ask you is, you know, what do you do? Where do you work? Because that's how sort of we determine someone's someone's um, um, value. Worth. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And um, I mean, that's unfortunate. But I mean, even doing this podcast, like I, there are people that, uh, like this is fun for me to do, obviously. And it's totally outside of sort of my regular tasks. And I don't even really mention it much in the office. Um, but it's because I just, I'm interested in other things than, than, than just my, my job. And I do think that, I think everybody can get there. I do think we, like, I have talked to people who just say like, I don't know, I don't have many hobbies. I don't know what to do, but it is just exploring and just, you know, just giving it some thought, you know? There's so much out there, especially in the age of the internet, that you can really do good. You can get involved in worthwhile things, um, but you just have to know where to look and to want to look. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. Maybe that's a good place to to leave it. That may be a good place to leave it. All right. Well, um, let's wrap this up then, shall we? Uh, I just want to uh, remind everybody, if you enjoy the show, please, please tell a friend. It does mean a lot to us uh, if you do that. We're seeing our, our subscriber numbers go up quite a bit. It's really, really thrilling for us to see that. So I really appreciate it. We both appreciate it. Um, thank you so much. You can also follow us on social media to get some updates and some clips and a couple of other things. Uh, we are at PR Law Pod, P R L A W P O D. And that's on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. All of them have the same account, PR Law Pod. Uh, and also, you can uh, support us through Patreon. You can go through to our website, prandlawpodcast.com, prandlawpodcast.com, and click support the show. So for you and Christy, this is Cam McMurchie. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next week. This has been the PR and Law Podcast with Cam McMurchie and you and Christy. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend or leave a review. You can also join us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by following our account at PR Law Podcast. That's all one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Thanks for your support. 